I'm very excited to be here this morning for this Harvest of Talent Sunday. I, I missed last year. I was out of town. Um, so I am very glad to be here and, and experience uh, the talents and the grace and the gifts that God has given this congregation. And I look forward to sharing a meal with you and to blessing the, the missionaries around the world with those talents. I'm also extremely excited to be speaking to you this morning. Um, I appreciate this opportunity to study with you and grow uh, under your care. Last week we started a new series called Here and There. And we're making our way through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, Charles preached on the first five books, verses of the book where Peter describes how God has given us a new birth into a living hope. And Charles also shared in his message about how this world is not our home. We are aliens, strangers. Our end result is somewhere else far greater. He said, we are here now, but there is where we are striving to spend our eternity we're going to be picking up this week in verses 6 through 7 to discuss, is your faith genuine? And to preserve the flow of, of Peter's ideas in this chapter, I'm going to start with verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you openly. Thank you that we can come and gather this morning and study your word. I pray that you'll be with us this morning. I pray that you'll help me get out of the way. In your son's name we pray, amen. This has been a humbling and challenging letter to sit with these past few weeks as I've studied. And Charles, in his, his introduction 
to 1 Peter touched on the persecution and trials these churches were suffering under. Along with the theme of being strangers or aliens in a foreign land, we also see this theme of suffering. It's something that Peter addresses multiple times throughout the letter. And so as we get to these first verses about suffering, I'd like to expand on that introduction and walk through some of the early history of the church up until this point. In the first three years after Jesus rose from the dead, the persecution really begins with the stoning of Stephen. Acts 8, beginning in verse 1, says, Now Saul was consenting to his death, Stephen's. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. This is the dispersion that uh, Peter is addressing here at the beginning of the book. And we can read about it again in Acts 11.19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. And in the next 10 years, the church continues to grow, and with the help of Paul, expands to the Gentiles. But they experience famine and even more persecution. Acts 12, starting verse 1 says, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, attending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Now it's here that Peter, with the help of angels, escapes from prison. And it doesn't appear that he returns to Jerusalem. I think he he does not come back. And when we get to this letter of Peter, scholars and historians believe it was written around 64 AD. And from sources outside of Scripture, we know some other things about this time period and the suffering of the church. During that summer, Rome suffered a terrible fire. It raged for six days and seven nights and consumed almost three-quarters of the city. The historian Tacitus describes this event about 60 years later. Therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set Rome on fire, the emperor Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished the most fearful torture with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians, who were generally hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, In the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out yet again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but throughout the city of Rome also, whether all things horrible and disgraceful flow from all quarters as to a common receptacle, and where they are encouraged. 
Accordingly, first, those were arrested who confessed they were Christians. Next, on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city, but as of hating the human race. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs, or nailed to crosses or set fire to, and when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. Nero offered his own garden players for the spectacle and exhibited a Circassian game, indiscriminately mingling with the common people in the dress of a charioteer or else standing in his chariot. For this cause, a feeling of compassion arose towards the sufferers, though guilty and deserving of an exemplary capital punishment because they seemed not to be cut off for the public good, but were victims of the ferocity of one man. This is not a Christian writing this. This is the setting of Peter's letter. He's writing to churches that are experiencing the full brunt of not only Jewish persecution, but that of the mightiest empire on earth at that time. Imagine, for a moment, not just living in Rome and the horrors described there, but anywhere in the shadow of that government. You are declared haters of the human race, deserving of capital punishment for the public good. How would your neighbors treat you? When you went to sell your crops or buy wheat or bread, how do you think you might be treated? Do old friends turn aside from you in the street? Does your family disown you? To be honest, I, I don't think this is something that a lot of us can even really imagine here in Casper, Wyoming. But I want to say the suffering of the church is not just ancient history. According to a Pew Research study, Christians were persecuted in 143 countries in 2017. The Center for Studies on New Religions determined that 90,000 Christians were killed for their beliefs worldwide in 2016. Our present situation here in the United States of America, Casper, Wyoming, is in fact the exception rather than the rule. More Christians were killed for the faith in the 20th century than in the previous 19 combined. We have been living and we're living now in the greatest era of persecution in Christian history. And as we move through the book of Peter today and in the coming weeks, this is the sobering reality to keep in mind. This letter is written to the church that suffers and that experiences the cost of discipleship worked out in daily living. Let's read again verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In some other translations, you may read instead of genuine, genuineness of your faith, proof, the proof of your faith. 
The Greek word is the kamion. It means the proving or that by which something is tried or proved, a test. What does it mean to have genuine or authentic faith? It is a faith that has been put to the test, passed through the fire, and found to be true. While the postmodernism wave has maybe sapped some of its strength, we are still a culture that understands authenticity. We test everything in our world. There's car safety tests, blind taste tests, blind smell tests. We test our students so much they know more about taking tests than about the subjects they're taking tests on. If you don't know, for my day job, I work as a computer programmer. So when I get up here, you're going to get examples from that. And I know it's, it's nerdy and incomprehensible, but that's the place that I operate. So it's hard for me not to think about these things. But there's a, a development practice that we use that's called test-driven development. And this method requires the programmer to write tests for every function, every small unit of code that, that performs a task. And as you develop the project for every change you make, you continually run these tests to make sure that the tests haven't broken anything. It is extremely time-consuming, but it can be mission-critical for all sorts of software that you don't want failing. We write programs to test the programs we write. A few years ago, I read an article about counterfeit plane parts. I don't know if anyone remembers that. Uh, but counterfeit and defective plane parts were ending up in US planes. The parts weren't being checked for their authenticity. They weren't being tested. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't get on an airplane that doesn't have authentic or genuine parts that haven't been tested and verified. You're, you're, you're crazy if you're going to get on something like that. And it was a shocking article to find out that it was happening. So when Peter talks about the genuineness of your faith, it's a faith that has been tested. And in verse 7, he says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Here's this idea of precious gold tested by fire. When they take and refine metal ores, there are all sorts of impurities caused by other metals or materials in the ore. Now, I think we all realize that it doesn't come out of the ground in perfect ingot, ingots. It's like the steak doesn't end up on your plate, just came out of the ground that way. In the basic process, when you heat the metal to liquid temperatures, you get a pool of impurities that forms on the top which we call dross. The dross is separate from the, the metal that you want and then is discarded. These days, there's actually chemical processes uh, to do this using things like acids, uh, but the concept is still the same. We want the gold or silver or precious metal, and it has to be separated out. And this is actually a pretty common metaphor that we find in Scripture. Solomon, in Proverbs 25, starting verse 4, says, Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Here's this idea that if, if the king 
wants a righteous throne and a righteous kingdom. You need to take the dross away from the, the silver for the silversmith to make that jewelry. You have to take the wicked away from before the king. If we look at Job, a man who was very familiar with suffering, in chapter 23, he said, Look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job realizes that when he is tested, as a result, he comes forth as gold, and the dross has been burned away. If you are familiar at all with the story of the Bible, you can recognize this element of the story, this element of faith put to the test. And it begins as early as the third chapter, when the serpent challenges that trust and he asks Eve, did God really say? And we see the result of the failure of that test. For Abraham, when he was well into old age, he was promised a son. And after seeing this promise fulfilled, God asked him to sacrifice that son. The result and the fulfillment of promises. Joseph is tested when he is sold into slavery, beaten. And then he's in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. The nation of Israel is tested following Moses through the desert. We heard some of that in the meditation this morning. And then they're tested in the conquest of Canaan and then following after the judges and kings. The prophets were tested. Elijah was pursued by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Jeremiah was a solitary voice could not find one righteous person in all of Judah. Or how about Larry's favorite guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Their faith in the one true God put them directly at odds with the culture around them. The test of a fiery furnace. In Hebrews chapter 11, we find a summary of the faith in the Old Testament. Starting in verse 32, we read, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness they were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. 
They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And then we get to the New Testament. We read about James, John, Barnabas, Silas, Paul, or the history that we open with. The church undergoes a series of trials from the very beginning. We see shipwrecks, imprisonment, beatings, riots, famine, and martyrdom. Let's think of the writer of this letter himself, Peter. On the night Jesus was arrested, denies Christ three times. Three times he is tested. We see examples of failure and also examples of faith refined by the fire. Jesus, in his parable of the sower, talks about the tests we might undergo. And as he explains this, the parable in Matthew 13, he describes what can happen when you're tested. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom of God and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed in stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the word on the good ground, the seed on the good ground, is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Faith that is not put to the test is lip service. I don't trust that chair until I sit on it. I don't trust the plane until I get on that flight. Faith without a root that doesn't bear fruit withers and dies. I don't know the trials that we'll each face. We may not see the suffering of the early church or our current brethren in China or North Korea or Iraq. But we are all given the same charge to follow our master, to take up our cross daily. As disciples, we are tasked with obedience to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and to make more disciples. And that is going to put you to the test no matter the country you are living in. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, starting verse 10, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, 
and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through the faith which is in Jesus Christ. We should expect the test and prepare for the test and be ready for the test. James puts it this way. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Notice he says, not if you fall into various trials, but when. And there's that word joy again. I don't, notice, I don't know if you noticed it in Peter, but he says rejoice. He opens verse 6 with rejoice. Rejoice in trials and suffering? How do you do that? It circles back to the idea of here and there. The material world around us is not all that there is. And the there is not just about a location or a time. There is a better place prepared for us where suffering is banished and death is no more. Though for a little while we undergo trials, one day the race will be finished and we will go home. We'll no longer be strangers up there. And those two things are true and important. But the there is really about a person. The Lord of the universe, our living hope, stepped into time as a man. He came here into the evil, ugly muck of sin and hatred and greed and lust and rebellion. He came here and suffered alongside us. He suffered for us. He fulfilled the promises and proved the love of God. He showed himself true and authentic and genuine when after a horrific death on the cross, which he bore for our sake, he rose again to life. And we are rescued from slavery by his sacrifice to one day be united with him for all time. This is joy. This is worth rejoicing over. This is a man to put your trust in. He is the God in whom you should place your genuine faith. And as we're coming to a close, I want to read to you about two churches, each addressed by Christ in the book of Revelation. If you want to turn Revelation 3, starting at verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that, make, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. 
I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the first one. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, the shame, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Don't sit on the fence. Don't be lukewarm. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I'm going to tell you this morning, it is of infinite importance. Place your faith and trust and hope in Jesus. If you'll be standing, we'll sing the hymn of invitation. Ray comes forward. It's number 116.